Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our Pali Canon in English study group where we study the words of the Buddha in this book series titled The Words of the Buddha, The Path to Enlightenment, Revealing the Hidden. We're in volume 10, which is titled The Buddha's Way. We're going to be studying chapters 21 through 30 today. And if this is your first time joining, I'd like to let you know how we do our program. We start with a few minutes of meditation, just probably like a 10, 15 minute meditation, just to kind of prepare the mind for study and kind of clear out any residual clutter that might be there to help you retain the teachings for a longer period of time. And this allows you to then implement them into your practice. And you can do this not only prior to a class, but prior to other things that you do that are really important and impactful to your life especially if you have your other meditations, you know, two or three kind of anchor points where you're really meditating with a more developed practice, you know, maybe upwards of 30 minutes per session. This is just like a little top-up meditation just to kind of help you prepare for the class. Then after the meditation, the students who are in Zoom will volunteer to read a particular chapter and then we will discuss it. I will share teachings on that particular chapter and then open up to any questions that you guys might have. If you're joining us for the first time and you haven't read these chapters, which some of the students who join regularly actually read before class, it's okay if you haven't read these chapters because we're going to read them in class and you can study along with us. And then if you'd like to join future classes, you can download these books at buddhadailywisdom.com and you can read before and or after class. That way when you come to class, you maybe will have some questions and points of clarification that you're looking for as part of our discussion. So I'd like to welcome all of you to our class today, whether you're joining for the first time or you've been joining regularly, welcome. Pleased that you're here and I'd like to invite you to join us for meditation. So if you would like to take a position for meditation, typically that's the seated position as these classes are really well suited for that. I don't usually provide too much guidance for our meditations as part of this class because people who usually join this class are more developed in their meditation practice and don't need as much guidance. So I just do a little bit of guidance for anybody who may be joining us for the first time. So just have your lower body in your hands and arms nice and comfortable. The Buddha put his right hand over his left with his thumbs together, and then he put that in his lap. But if that's not comfortable for you, you can put your palms on your thighs or your knees. If you're in a chair, you might put your arms on the armrest of the chair. Your lower body and hands and arms should be completely relaxed, no muscles engaged whatsoever. The upper body should be erect. This keeps the mind attentive and alert during the meditation. Next, just close the eyes 
and start breathing in through the nose and out through the nose. Just establishing a nice, steady, consistent breath. I'm going to start with some chanting. And for those of you guys that know these chants, you're welcome to join along. And then I'll be back with just some brief guidance after the chanting. isn't going to sync up to the guidance that I'm providing, but wherever you get to the next inhale, just breathe in gradually through the nose, experiencing the full breath. And then whenever you get to the next exhale, just gradually exhale through the nose, experiencing the full exhale. Breathing in. In, out. 
Once the breath is established, fixate the mind on the breath, the sound of the breath, or the sensation of air moving into the nose, over the skin. The breath is the present moment. Fixate the mind on the breath. Whenever the mind moves off the breath, cut that off, let it go, and come back to the breath, the present moment. Breathing in. In, out.
We'll go ahead and transition over to studying the words of the Buddha. As I mentioned, we're in volume 10 of this book series, studying chapters 21 through 30 today. And we start off with students reading each chapter, and then I'll share some teachings and then open up to any questions that you guys might have on each individual chapter. So I'll just turn things over to all of you. Um, yes, sir. I will be reading chapter 21, uh, The Suitable Way for Attaining Nibbana, Enlightenment, Third Discourse. Monks, I will teach you the way that is suitable for attaining Nibbana, Enlightenment. Listen to that and attend closely, I will speak. And what, monks, is the way that is suitable for attaining Nibbana? Here, a monk sees the eye as non-self. He sees forms as non-self. He sees eye consciousness as non-self. He sees eye contact as non-self. He sees as non-self whatever feeling arises with eye contact as condition. 
whether pleasant or painful, or neither painful nor pleasant. He sees the ear as non-self. He sees sounds as non-self. He sees ear consciousness as non-self. He sees ear contact as non-self. He sees as non-self whatever feeling arises with ear contact as conditioned, whether pleasant or painful, or neither painful nor pleasant. He sees the nose as non-self. He sees odors as non-self. He sees nose consciousness as non-self. He sees nose contact as non-self. He sees as non-self whatever feeling arises with nose contact as conditioned, whether pleasant or painful, or neither painful nor pleasant. He sees the tongue as non-self. He sees flavors as non-self. He sees tongue consciousness as non-self. He sees tongue contact as non-self. He sees as non-self whatever feeling arises with tongue contact as conditioned, whether pleasant or painful, or neither painful nor pleasant. He sees the body as non-self. He sees physical objects as non-self. He sees body consciousness as non-self. He sees body contact as non-self. He sees as non-self whatever feeling arises with body contact as conditioned, whether pleasant or painful, or neither painful nor pleasant. He sees the mind as non-self. He sees mental objects as non-self. He sees mind consciousness as non-self. He sees mind contact as non-self. He sees as non-self whatever feeling arises with mind contact as conditioned, whether pleasant or painful, or neither painful nor pleasant. This, monks, is the way that is suitable for attaining Nibbana, enlightenment. All right. Thank you, Miranda. So this is the third discourse, and in the previous class, we studied the first and second discourse that is along these same lines. And essentially what the Buddha is doing is he's going through and helping you to understand the three universal truths of the universal truth of impermanence, the universal truth of discontentedness, and the universal truth of non-self. And he's connecting it to the central desire and the sense spaces that whatever we experience through the sense spaces, this is impermanent. It's going to lead to discontentedness and it's not the self. It's not who you are as a person. So when you come into contact with things through the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, bodily contact, or the mind, all of these things are not the self. That's not who you are. And the feelings that you experience that may arise, if there's discontentedness in terms of pleasant feelings, painful feelings, or neither painful nor pleasant, as these arise in the mind, the Buddha is saying this isn't who you are. This isn't who you are as a person. It's not the self or it's non-self. And he's just going through each of these, helping you to see that more and more clearly. And then what he's saying here when he phrases it as, here a monk sees the I as non-self, so forth and so on. Whatever feeling arises with eye contact as condition, whether pleasant, painful, or neither painful nor pleasant. Here he says he sees as non-self, right? So meaning you understand. You understand that these feelings that arise, they're impermanent, they're discontentedness, they're not the self. You need to see that deeply. And this is where you can't believe the Buddhist teachings, but instead you need to learn them, reflect on them, and practice them because you need to deeply observe how, yeah, when this discontentedness arises in the mind, that's not who you are as a person. It's just an impermanent feeling that will arise, it'll change, and it'll fade away. But the problem becomes when the mind clings to these feelings and holds on to them. If you think that's who you are as a person, let's just say, for an example, let's say there's a lot of anger that arises in the mind and you experience 
these outbursts of anger with various people, then if you view that as who you are, then that would not be a, a right view. So you need to view these feelings that you experience as they're not who you are, they're impermanent, and therefore it makes it easier for you to let them go. Implement the training so that they don't actually arise in the first place. So when he says he sees as non-self, what he's saying here is he, a practitioner, understands that these feelings are not the self. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? It does not appear there are any questions at this time, sir. All right, so we'll go to this fourth discourse. Yes, let's go to Jan to read chapter 22, please. Thank you, Miranda. The suitable way for attaining Nibbana, enlightenment, fourth discourse. Monks, I will teach you the way that is suitable for attaining Nibbana, enlightenment. Listen to that and attend closely. I will speak. What do you think, monks? Is the I permanent or impermanent? Impermanent, venerable sir. Is what is it permanent, discontentedness or contentedness? Discontentedness, venerable sir. Is what is impermanent, discontentedness and subject to change fit to be regarded thus? This is mine, this I am, this is myself. No, venerable sir. Are forms permanent or impermanent? Is eye consciousness permanent or impermanent? Is eye contact permanent or impermanent? Is any feeling that arises with eye contact as conditioned, whether pleasant or painful, or neither painful nor pleasant, permanent or impermanent? Impermanent, venerable sir. Is the ear permanent or impermanent? Is the nose permanent or impermanent? Is the tongue permanent or impermanent? Is the body permanent or impermanent? Is the mind permanent or impermanent? Is any feeling that arises with ear contact, nose contact, tongue contact, body contact, mind contact as condition permanent or impermanent? Impermanent, venerable sir. Is what is impermanent discontentedness or contentedness? Discontentedness, venerable sir. Is what is impermanent discontentedness and subject to change fit to be regarded thus? This is mine, this I am, this is myself. No, venerable sir. Seeing thus monks, the instructed noble disciple experiences a fading away of strong feelings toward the eye, towards forms, a fading away of strong feelings towards eye consciousness, a fading away of strong feelings towards ear, sorry, eye contact, a fading away of strong feelings towards whatever feeling arises with eye contact as condition, whether painful or pleasant, or neither painful nor pleasant. All the below were restated as above. He experiences a fading away of strong feelings towards the ears, towards the nose, towards the tongue, towards the body, towards the mind, towards whatever feeling arises with mind contact as condition, whether pleasant or painful, or neither painful nor pleasant. Experiencing a fading away of strong feelings, he becomes free from strong feelings. Through freedom from strong feelings, his mind is liberated. When he is liberated, there comes the knowledge, it's liberated. He understands, destroyed his birth, the holy life has been lived. What had to be done has been done. There is no more for this state of existence. This monks is the way that is suitable for attaining Nibbana, 
enlightenment. All right. Thank you, Jan. So here the Buddha is combining the discourses that he shared earlier. He's combining it to help his students see that all of these sense bases are impermanent. And the more you understand that, then the mind is less likely to cling and hold on or crave through these sense bases. Even with this understanding, you can't just snap your fingers and eliminate craving from the mind. But this is kind of the preliminary learning that somebody needs to do so that then as they reflect and see the truth, then as they practice, they kind of getting ahead of the curve, so to speak, is that when you see things through the eyes and you're starting to observe these bodily sensations arise because of pleasant feelings, then you can cut that off and not allow it to become pleasant feelings in the mind to then affect the condition of the mind or become mental objects. And the same thing when there's painful feelings, there's going to be these bodily sensations first. And if you observe that and you know that feeling's impermanent to begin with, so therefore it is unsatisfying, then why let that feeling come into the mind and actually pollute the mind? Because it's impermanent and it's only going to reside in the mind for a certain period of time, if you cut it off and let it go as a bodily sensation, then you're getting ahead of the curve and you can keep the mind in this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy where it's not longing for these pleasant feelings and then being shaken up by these painful feelings as well. So understanding that all this contact through these sense spaces is impermanent, then you can feel more comfortable with when you observe certain pleasant feelings starting to arise to cut it off and let it go. And that's what helps you to get ahead of the curve and diminish and eliminate central desire so that you can then liberate the mind from basing its inner feelings on this impermanent conditions. And the Buddha talks about this with all the sense bases. And then he says something here, which he says in other places too, which I think is really important for you to understand, is that as the mind's moving to enlightenment, there's these fading away of strong feelings and he becomes ultimately free of strong feelings. But there's this gradual diminishing of strong feelings that I talk about as the mind gets closer and closer to enlightenment. So that's where the Buddha says, okay, there's this fading away of strong feelings. That's the diminishing. But then ultimately, as you get to enlightenment, there's this freedom or being coming free of the strong feelings, meaning there's no longer these conditioned pleasant feelings, conditioned painful feelings, and neither painful nor pleasant. And then the Buddha says, okay, freedom from strong feelings, his mind is liberated, meaning it's free. It's no longer bound up in chasing after the objects of your affection and can be controlled by these craving desire attachments. Instead, you've eliminated all that. You've purified the mind and it's now free from these strong feelings. That means the mind is enlightened. When the mind is liberated or the mind is enlightened, in other words, he says, there comes the knowledge it is liberated or it's liberated, meaning the individual who's put in all this time, effort, energy, and resources to train the mind and get to enlightenment, their mind is now liberated. You will know that your mind's liberated. You will know for yourself because you'll go one year, two years, three years without experiencing any discontentedness because you've eradicated all the 10 fetters and you will know that the mind is enlightened at that point. 
if you experience discontentedness of any type, then you know that the mind isn't liberated. So if you experience anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, boredom, loneliness, shyness, resentment, jealousy, all these discontent feelings in others, even just a little bit of ickiness, just a little bit of dissatisfaction or displeasure, even just a little bit of ickiness there in the mind, the mind's not yet fully liberated. But once it is fully liberated, you will know that it's liberated. And that's where you'll know that you are not going to go out and tell everybody because if somebody goes out and, you know, kind of professes that they're enlightened to other people, that means there's still ego, there's still arrogance, there's still pride. That means the mind's not enlightened. They're still craving and desire for other people to know that you're enlightened, going out and telling people that you're enlightened. So you don't go out and profess and advertise that the mind is enlightened. The mind is so peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. You don't need to tell other people. You just enjoy the benefits of all your hard work that you've put in over multiple years. So there's this knowledge that it's liberated. The mind has been liberated. And then you also will understand at that point that there's no more birth, that there isn't going to be any more rebirth. So you've eliminated that misery, that despair, that grief in this life, and there's no longer going to be rebirth for this to occur all over again. So if you've done all this hard work to get to that point, then you can be confident that, all right, it's done. What had to be done has been done. The holy life has been lived, as the Buddha says here. There's no more for this state of existence. And that's the actual goal, is to no longer exist in the cycle of rebirth. Once an individual attains enlightenment and dies, the Buddha left this as an undeclared teaching. But we know that there's no more existence in the cycle of rebirth. For someone who doesn't attain enlightenment, there is going to be further existence, which means there's going to be continuous displeasure, despair, misery, grief, all of these discontent feelings and others. But for someone who gets to enlightenment in this life, you're going to enjoy the mental state for the rest of this life. And then there won't be any more rebirth for that to occur all over again. And the Buddha is saying, okay, this is the way to attain enlightenment is to understand that all this contact through the six sense spaces is impermanent And then in other parts of his teachings, he explains to you that when you experience these bodily sensations, to cut it off and let it go so that you can essentially keep the mind protected and it doesn't become these conditioned feelings. As you do that over time, you will eliminate all craving, desire, attachment, and you won't even experience the arising of bodily sensations that the same things can occur that once used to create discontentedness in the mind. But because you've eliminated the condition of craving, desire, attachment, that's no longer there, then you will no longer experience discontentedness. If you're experiencing discontentedness, then there's still craving in the mind that hasn't yet been eliminated. But once that's been eliminated, then the mind will just be permanently peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Jan has her hand raised, sir. Let's go to her. Thank you, Miranda. Thank you, Teacher David. Um, I found this very pertinent and kind of helpful um, when I came back from my business trip uh, and arrived at home. There were little twinges because things that um, we had discussed would get done hadn't been done. And so it was more of a kind of, I think, a physical sensation than any 
feeling, you know, just a little twinge of, oh, that didn't get done. Okay. And it was kind of easy to cut that off. Um, but I still feel like I need to interrogate where did that come from? You know, I, I obviously I wanted certain things, I had expectations, I wanted certain things to have been done that weren't done. And so I just want to check if that, that that's wise decision to interrogate that. Yeah, so that's the cravings, right? That's the desire, that's the wants, the expectations that when you left, you had certain conversations that things would get done at home. And then when you left, you expected for that to happen. You had a certain want, a certain craving. And when we say craving, you know, it sounds like a really strong word because I describe it as this mental longing with a strong eagerness. But there's this spectrum of, you know, craving desire attachments that are like a 10 and then there's these lighter ones that are maybe like a one or even maybe like a 0.5 and that's where when you came home you just felt this little twinge it wasn't such a significant craving that you went berserk and you went into rage or anger about it but you felt that little twinge so there was kind of this lighter degree of craving the more intense the craving is the more intense the discontentedness is going to be so when we talk about this fading away of strong feelings that the buddha is using those words here and i describe it as this diminishing of discontentedness that's because as you're actively working to diminish craving desire attachment and no longer are these craving desire attachments a 10 but they're less you'll experience less discontentedness it'll be easier to cut it off and let it go because the mind is getting closer and closer to enlightenment but then there's other cravings that may be in the mind now that are more significant like let's just say you know obviously this didn't happen it would be unfortunate if it did but let's say you came home and you found your husband you know dead in the in the living room when you walked in from being away now that is probably a stronger craving desire attachment that you're holding on to your husband that wouldn't have been just a twinge that would have been something a lot stronger but what you're working to do is get to the point where you don't have any of those strong craving desire attachments and even if you did walk in and see a, a family member that is passed out on the floor or dead on the floor that you could then just start making wise decisions it wouldn't shake up your mind and this is where the mind is liberated from the various impermanence that we experience so you experience some impermanence coming home your mind was craving permanence and it didn't get what it wanted so it felt that little twinge but you would like to now eliminate that which you've done it sounds like when you came home and you're like all right well it didn't get done no big deal but then on all these different areas where you observe that the mind is experiencing discontentedness you would like to eliminate those cravings and where you can get ahead of the curve knowing that those cravings exist like maybe an attachment in a relationship there's methods that we use to eliminate the craving desire attachments that we have in relationships i've shared some of those with you in our personal discussions but that's what you ultimately would like to get to and where the mind's going to actually be liberated is when there's no more craving desire attachments whatsoever so it sounds like you did exactly what you should do which is you were observant of the mind you saw those little twinges when they came up you cut them off and let them go and just moved on thank you mm -hmm. you're welcome to double check the understanding of this sir as a practitioner realizes non-self it becomes easier for them to become detached or distance um, to end this craving and aversion. 
because they're seeing all of these things as non-self. Is that correct way to understand this, sir? Yeah, as you're letting go of those fetters and you're eliminating from the mind, the mind becomes more and more liberated. And that first fetter of personal existence view is where the mind falsely believes or mistakenly understands, has this misperception that this physical body is who you are as a person or that this mind is who you are. So when you have established personal existence view in the mind, then the mind's clinging to the self-image and the self-identity in the mind, thinking this is who you are as a person. So now it's easy for your mind to be shaken up because if someone says something agreeable about your self-image or self-identity, there'll be these pleasant feelings. And it's only a matter of time before someone says something disagreeable, and now there's going to be these painful feelings. But when you have eliminated personal existence view, and you deeply understand that this body isn't you, this mind isn't you, then when you hear something agreeable, it's like, oh, okay, you might just say thank you, appreciate your kindness, you know, you're so polite or whatever. But then when you hear something disagreeable, then it doesn't shake up the mind. You might just smile, you might just move on, you might say something to the person. It depends on, you know, who it is, what they say, you know, all the different variables involved. But your mind's not going to be shaken up by it. Where in the past, when there's personal existence view and a practitioner is untrained and they don't realize that this is in there causing the mind to experience discontentness because of the craving and clinging to this personal existence view, then it's easy for the mind to be shaken up. I mean, people have been murdered over that, right? If you sometimes say something to somebody that is disagreeable to them about their self-image or self-identity, people have killed over those kind of things. And now they're wasting away in jail and they've destroyed their life because they had this personal existence view and the mind was untrained and hasn't eliminated that. So yes, once that's eliminated from the mind, then it can be more at ease and more peaceful, not being shaken up by any agreeable or disagreeable comments related to the self-image or self-identity. Thank you, sir. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jan has her hand raised. Let's go to her. Thank you, Miranda. That was a very helpful question to me. Thank you, teacher David. Um, when I was training people, I was in the position of professionally of needing to help people who are were very shaken up. And I don't have a lot of experience dealing with this. Um, so I was kind of winging it. <laughs> but um, I wonder if you have any guidance for that situation where one's professional role requires one to help somebody who is shaken up and upset. Yeah, the best thing to do is just give them time and space to calm the mind because if their mind's shaken up, it's going to be hard for them to take in what it is you have to to share with them in terms of wisdom. So that five factors of well-spoken speech where the Buddha talks about speaking at the right time, of course, that's ensuring that we're not interrupting people. That's ensuring that our mind isn't discontent when we actually are speaking. But then there's another aspect to this, that ensuring that the people you're speaking to, that their mind isn't shaken up. So if you observe that people's minds are shaken up, it's the wrong time to, to speak about any particular thing. And it would be wise for you just to put it on pause. And when you are 
eliminating craving, desire, attachment, you don't have a craving to discuss something, it's very easy for you to not talk about something. Even though there's something that comes up in your mind, you would like to share this with somebody, you know that it's important for them, but you observe that their mind isn't ready for it. If you don't have craving, you can easily pull that back and decide now's not the right time to discuss it and then just discuss it another time. So that would be the best thing to do is ensure that you're speaking at the right time when somebody's mind is shaken up. You can't control their mind. You can't give them contentedness. You can't give them peacefulness, but you can make decisions to give them space and give them time to settle their mind. And that can be really helpful for you to be effective in helping this person with whatever other wisdom that it is that you're looking to share with them. Thank you. That, that helped me. I think that was um, mostly what happened with one individual in particular. She kept thanking me and telling me what an angel I was, which, you know, is, I guess, a sign that she felt that things went well. Mm-hmm. So uh, uh, thank you. That's helpful. Yeah, you're welcome. And this is a good example, too. Like, you know, I talk about this self-image and self-identity with personal existence view in a situation like that where somebody's complimenting you and giving you such glowing you know comment like oh you're such an angel you know you've helped me tremendously you know all of this you know really positive compliments that's where you need to just maintain that middle way and even though this person's being very gracious very polite very kind you may even appreciate that they're giving you this feedback so that you know that you're on the right path in terms of your job and your performance and the way you're helping somebody. You can maintain that middle and say thank you, you know, appreciate your kindness, you know, appreciate your feedback or whatever it is you're going to say, but don't allow the mind to take these pleasant feelings and get these pleasant feelings because this person might be saying that. But you might, you know, go to the bathroom and run into another student that's like, you know, your lectures are so horrible. How did you ever get this position? You know, I can't even understand a word that you're saying. You know, your shirt is too colorful for me. It's bothering my mind, you know, whatever it is, you know, that they might be saying. So that's why when you hear those positive, overwhelming compliments, you don't allow the mind to grab onto that and arise these pleasant feelings. And wherever you see potential of pleasant feelings arising with the bodily sensations, you cut that off and let it go so that then you can maintain the middle way. And you just know that, hey, I'm doing the best that I can do. I'm applying my effort and energy and resources here to help these people. And if this person's having a positive experience, wonderful. I'm pleased that they're having that experience. If this person is having a negative experience and isn't being getting the help that they need, I'm willing to listen to that and I'm willing to see if there's anything that I can improve. But at the end of the day, you're going to do the way that you, you know, the way that you function. If you're teaching 100 people, it's impossible for all 100 people to walk away from there thinking that you're an excellent teacher, you know, the best lecture they've ever had because of impermanence. There's going to be a certain percentage of people that think that you're absolutely outstanding and the best instructor they've ever encountered. And there's going to be people that walk away with just the opposite view too. And that's where by understanding impermanence and that your goal isn't to get every single person in here to think that you're so great, your mind can be at ease. Because if we have this personal existence view and we want everybody to view us as the best teacher that's ever walked the face of the earth, 
then when you go into this group of 100 people, then with this craving is going to motivate unskillful conduct and we're going to function in ways that aren't necessarily beneficial. Whereas if we understand that, hey, I can deliver the wisdom that I can deliver, I'm going to share that and the people who benefit from that, outstanding. The people who feel like it's not helpful, then okay, I understand that because that's the universal truth of impermanence. Without the understanding of the universal truth of impermanence, we might enter into an environment like that putting pressure on ourselves to be the very best teacher to all hundred people. And now it motivates this unskillful conduct. So when we understand that there's going to be people who absolutely adore us and think we're the most wonderful person who's ever walked the face of the earth. And there's going to be people who think just the opposite. And that's where you can just reside peaceful and content because you know that that's part of the universal truth of impermanence, that you can't be the very best teacher for every single person. May I ask one follow-up question? Um, I think my reaction to hearing comments that, as this lady made is, um, oh, <laughs> that's not true. I may, I don't want to denigrate myself either, but I, I'm trying to just find a, an even keel reaction. Would that be right? Yeah, that's the conceit that's in there. Because remember, conceit, you're either going to put yourself above people or below people. So when you hear those positive compliments and you think, oh, that's not true, then this is the mind's ego wanting to put yourself below other people. And this is just as damaging as putting yourself above other people. So when you hear those words, you should understand it that that's their opinion. So it sounds like you don't have that opinion of yourself, which isn't helpful, right? You should have confidence, but without arrogance. And you can be confident to walk into a classroom and share your wisdom or into a seminar and share your your wisdom, not with arrogance, but also not with this diminishing negative view of yourself either. Because if you're up there talking with this diminished negative view of yourself, that's going to come across in your intentions, your speech and your actions. So you would like to maintain this middle way where there's confidence and you're able to walk in without arrogance, without degrading yourself with this confidence, deliver the wisdom that you're going to deliver and know that there's a certain portion of that population that's going to absolutely adore what you say and think you're the best ever. And they're going to tell you that. And then there's other people who don't feel that way about you. And they may tell you that too. But if you know that you're delivering what you can deliver and your goal isn't to please every single person in that audience, that can't be your goal because it's impossible. Your goal is to impart wisdom and share what it is that you have to share Whoever benefits from that, wonderful. If people don't benefit from that, then that's fine too. They're making the choice to come to this event. They're making the choice to learn from you. And if they're not learning something that they feel is valuable, they can also make the choice to leave. Your job isn't to please every last person who's sitting in a chair. Your goal is to share this wisdom that you have with confidence, without degrading yourself and without having arrogance. And then just be content with however many people benefited from what you shared because obviously people invited you to have this position of sharing this wisdom for a reason because they had confidence in you but you need to have confidence in yourself that when people share words of compliments with you rather than thinking oh that's not true and pushing it away maybe just thank them and share appreciation for their kind words would be a better way to handle it because that's their opinion. And they think that you're an outstanding teacher in that situation. And 
it's not going to help your mind to degrade and diminish the work that you're doing. Thank you, Teacher David. You're welcome. Thank you, sir. Um, on Facebook, Amina asks, can you describe the difference between non-self versus indifference? So indifference to me is like not caring, right? Like there's this craving, desire, attachment where you're holding on to something really tight. And then there's this indifference where the mind's kind of complacent or lackluster. So understanding that there is no self, meaning that this physical body and mind isn't who you are as a person, is helping the mind to reside peaceful and content when you hear agreeable or disagreeable comments. But this physical body is something that you're inhabiting right now in terms of the mind and body is coming together. So you still have to bathe, you still have to brush your teeth, you still have to eat food. Some people might need, decide to exercise and do other things. So we still need to do these kind of things in order to care for this physical body. But as we're doing that, we need to understand that this isn't who we are. So if we were craving, desiring, attached, thinking this physical body is who we are, let's just say somebody was obsessed with that. Maybe they took four, five, six, eight showers a day, you know, scrubbing obsessively of this physical body because they want to appear a certain way to people. But then also if people were indifferent and they didn't take shower or they didn't clean their body for multiple days at a time, then this would be problematic for them as well. They're going to end up with sores and infections and all these different things, you know, growing on the physical body, funguses and viruses and things like this. So that middle way is understanding that, okay, this physical body isn't who I am, but I still need to care for it and ensure that it's healthy because that's going to allow me to live this life more peacefully. So if you're indifferent about the physical body, then you wouldn't maintain it. Or if you were indifferent about the mind, you wouldn't apply effort and energy to train it. So the middle way is just understanding that, okay, this is the situation, is that there is a physical body, there is a mind, it's come together for this life. I need this now in order to train the mind. This is absolutely outstanding existence in the human world that I can now train the mind to get to enlightenment. So let me just take care of this physical body and mind and work my way as close to enlightenment as possible during this lifetime. That would be ensuring that you're not indifferent and you're not craving, but you understand non-self that this body and mind isn't who you are as a person. Thank you, sir. It does not appear we have any more questions at this time. All right, so let's move on to chapter 23. Disassociation will lead to your welfare and peacefulness. Monks, whatever is not yours, disassociate with it. When you have disassociated with it, that will lead to your welfare and peacefulness. And what is it, monks, that is not yours? The eye is not yours, disassociate with it. When you have disassociated with it, that will lead to your welfare and peacefulness. In the case of the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, and the mind, the discourses are similar to that of the eye. Suppose, monks, people were to carry off the grass, sticks, branches, and foliage in this Jada's grove, or to burn them, or to do with them as they wish. Would you think people are carrying us off, or burning us, or doing with us as they wish? No, venerable sir. For what reason? Because, venerable sir, that is neither ourself nor what belongs to ourself. 
so too mocks the eye, the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, the mind is not yours. Disassociate with it. When you have disassociated with it, that will lead to your welfare peacefulness. All right. Thank you, Miranda. So here, the Buddha is talking about Jedi's Grove. This is a place where the Buddha used to teach quite a bit. And there was a large collection of ordained practitioners in this area, and they resided there quite a bit. It was actually a, a temple that was built and donated to the Buddha. And they essentially, it became their home, even though they were homeless and it wasn't theirs, it didn't belong to them. This was essentially where they spent a lot of time. So even though a ordained practitioner knows that this temple doesn't belong to them, there's a tendency for the mind to kind of associate with this is, this is mine, right? You know, even if an ordained practitioner is living at a certain temple, they have a certain room that they keep their stuff in and they kind of retire to, that's where they sleep or what have you. And there's a tendency for the mind to grab onto it. Some monks will move around and travel around and go different places. And this helps them to not cling or hold on to any one particular thing. But here, even during the lifetime of the Buddha, there's the potential for people's minds that he was teaching to grab onto this place called Jetty's Grove and thinking that this is theirs and this belongs to them. So he's using this as a way to show them like, hey, this doesn't belong to us. This isn't who we are as a person. This is not ourself, so to speak, because this is a place that there's a tendency for those people who are learning and, and not yet enlightened to actually be attached to this particular monastery. So what you do here, and I've shared this with some of you guys as you're learning to accomplish um, the realization of non-self, is you disassociate with all of these things being the self. And the way that you disassociate or distance the mind from these things is you change your language. And the way that you're changing your language, the mind then will kind of relate to this object in a different way. So instead of saying, this is my phone, you might say, this is the phone. Or instead of, I'm gonna go to my car now, you might say, I'm gonna go to the car. Or instead of saying, you know, this is my house. You might say, this is the house, or this is where I live. Because as long as you keep that word mine, 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 mine in there, related to all these different things that we have in our life, the mind has a tendency to hold on to it and cling to it and start as the part of this clinging and craving, the mind's going to start experiencing discontentedness or it's already experiencing discontentedness related to these things. So if this is my phone and it belongs to me, and then when it gets broken or it gets misplaced or it's stolen or what have you, the mind can easily be shaken up because the mind's clinging to it and holding onto it so tightly. But if you just think about it as the phone, this is where you find the middle way. You still care for it. You still take care of it. You still use it. You still ensure that it's maybe clean, that the battery's charged, that you don't, you know, just haphazardly throw it across the room. You still care for it, but you don't associate it with being mine. And if the mind never takes ownership over it, then when it's gone because of impermanence, either it breaks or stolen or what have you, when that impermanence comes to visit the phone, then the mind is can be content with that because it just understands that, yeah, this of course, this phone just broke because it's impermanent. It's just a matter of time before this phone is no longer with me. I can't keep anything permanently. It's not possible. 
So you start changing the language of how you start associating with things instead of my home or my job or my clothes or my food. You just start thinking about the clothes or this is the place where I work or this is the place where I live. And if you think that way, then your mind will relate to these things different ways. And then when impermanence comes to visit you, the mind hasn't clung to it so therefore it doesn't necessarily have to let it go because it never allowed the mind to cling to it to begin with so this is the way that you get ahead of the curve and you protect the mind that even when you're in a a store and you're buying a brand new car or you're buying a brand new phone or you're buying brand new clothes you should already be telling yourself as they're checking you out at the cashier as you're trying on the clothes as you're looking at these new products just tell yourself and deeply soak into the mind that this is impermanent, that it's not going to be with you permanently. So while you might have found this really wonderful product and you know it's going to benefit you in your life and you really need this in your life in order to accomplish the goals and things that you're setting out to accomplish, you should already be soaking into the mind and knowing that this is impermanent. There's times where I've done this, whereas I'm purchasing something before I hand it to the cashier to purchase it, I'll just kind of stare at it for a few seconds and just tell myself it's impermanent, it's impermanent, it's impermanent. I'm just speaking to myself and just, you know, this isn't going to be with me permanently. And then I'll say, okay, you know, I'd like to buy this, right? And then when you buy it, you know, just reminding yourself that it's impermanent. And that allows you to protect the mind so that it never really clings or grabs onto this and gets attached to it. So that then when it leaves you at some point due to impermanence for whatever reason, the mind can reside peaceful and content because of it. But all the while, while you have this possession, you at least take care of it so that it can serve you well over whatever period of time that you have it for. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Sir, to double check the understanding of this, since there is no permanent self, nothing should be looked at as ours, even the sense bases. For instance, the eyes, a being can go blind, they can lose the you know use of their eyes. But even if that happens, that being still exists as that being because the eyes are not the self and the same for each sense base. Is that a good way to understand that, sir? Exactly. So the Buddha here is describing these sense bases. So as you age and for example your eyesight diminishes, you know, some people might get so discontent, so angry you know, um, oh my goodness, I have to wear glasses, you know, where are my glasses? Oh, I just hate that I'm losing my vision. This is because the mind's craving and holding on to the sense base of the eyes. Whereas if you just understand that the eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue, bodily contact, the mind, these things are all impermanent, that when you see a diminishing of these sense bases, that it just completely makes sense to you. And this is where the mind doesn't get shaken up because of it. As the mind progresses to enlightenment, the five sense bases of eyes, ears, nose, tongue, and bodily contact, the sensitivity and the development of these senses will diminish, but the mind actually doesn't. For an enlightened being, even as you age, your mind will be just as sharp as it was when you were younger in life. 
sharper even because you won't have the pollution. The Buddha talks about this at other parts of his teachings where he discusses how the five senses are diminishing due to age, but the sense base of the mind is still just as sharp in having this penetrating wisdom even all the way to his death. So that's something that you can know and you can be observant of. And then when you see the diminishing of these sense bases, you know that it's not you, it's not who you are. Just because you can't see as good as you did when you were a youth, it doesn't mean that you're less of a person. You just find other ways, right? If you've got younger people around, you say, hey, can you read this for me? What's that number on my credit card? Or nowadays we have these phones, we can take pictures of the the writing or whatever, and then we can expand it and get a better view of those things. So we just find other ways to accomplish the same goals. Whereas if we're craving to the eyesight and we're wanting that eyesight to be the same as it was in our youth, then the mind's going to be discontent because the mind doesn't understand the impermanent nature of these sense bases. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. Um, it does not appear we have any other questions, sir. All right. We'll go to the next one, 24. Yes, sir. Let's go to Jan to read chapter 24. Thank you, Miranda. The arising and elimination of feeling. Monks, these three feelings are born of contact, rooted in contact, with contact as their source and condition. What three? Pleasant feelings, painful feelings, neither painful nor pleasant feeling. Independence on a contact to be experienced as pleasant, monks, a pleasant feeling arises. With the elimination of that contact to be experienced as pleasant, the corresponding feeling, the pleasant feeling that arose in dependence on that contact to be experienced as pleasant is eliminated and subsides. In case of painful feeling, neither painful nor pleasant feeling, similar discourses were spoken by the perfectly enlightened one. Monks, just as heat is generated and fire is produced from the conjunction and friction of two fire sticks, but when the sticks are separated and laid aside, the resulting heat is eliminated and subsides. So too, these three feelings are born of contact, rooted in contact, with contact as their source and condition. Independence on the appropriate contacts, the corresponding feelings arise. With the elimination of the appropriate contacts, the corresponding feelings are eliminated. All right. Thank you, Jan. So here, the Buddha is breaking down and helping you see more about these discontent feelings. We know from all of his other teachings, and if you've independently verified this, you know that it's craving, desire, attachment that is the cause of these pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and neither painful nor pleasant feelings, this discontentedness. It's craving, desire, attachment that is the cause of that. But with craving, desire, attachment existing in the mind, there needs to be contact through the six sense bases in order for these feelings to arise. So the Buddha is helping you see that, that yes, there is craving, desire, attachment that causes these feelings, but there also needs to be this contact as condition for these feelings to arise. And where you use this information to your benefit is that wherever you see that discontentedness is arising, that you know that there's craving, desire, attachment there, yes, from other teachings, and you address that. But also, if you're noticing discontentedness arising, you know that contact is one of the conditions that are 
causing that. So you can actually eliminate contact and this will eliminate the arising of this feeling. So let's just use Jan's example since she was nice enough to offer an example at the beginning of class that say she went into this training environment, she had all these hundred students and then she delivers her first lecture and after her first lecture, maybe two or three students came to her and started complaining about her lecture and saying that there was something wrong with it for some reason. Well, if she noticed that these painful feelings, this frustration or anger is arising, she might just say to them, you know, excuse me one moment, I need to use the restroom. Let me go use the restroom and I'll come back and we can finish our conversation. By breaking contact, that allows the mind to now go away. You know, maybe you don't even have to use the bathroom. You're just going to go in there, wash your hands or whatever. This allows your mind maintain its composure or regain its composure so that now you can go back into the situation with a calm mind and a level mind and say, okay, you guys had some feedback on my lecture. Sure, let's discuss that. I'd like to hear what it is you guys had to say. And now with this regained composure, because you've let go of the painful feelings that were starting to arise, you can now have a professional conversation where you listen to the feedback. And this can be really helpful for you if you understand that it's contact as condition with the craving, desire, attachment that's arising these pleasant feelings, painful feelings are neither painful nor pleasant. And same thing if we were in a conversation with a life partner or with a child or any professional contacts or even a neighbor, if we're observing these discontent feelings arising, one of the quick, easy ways to diminish that is to eliminate contact. And, you know, you probably don't want to just walk away and kind of, you know, kind of ignore them or be disrespectful by just walking away. You might say to them, oh, you know, I left something in the house. Let me go get that and then I'll come back and we can finish our conversation. And you might just be going to get your keys or you might just be going to get a a potato chip or something, right? You don't have to say something specific. You don't have to lie. You're not interested in lying to the person. You just say, oh, I left something in the house. Let me go get that and I'll be back and we can discuss this. Because if you're feeling the discontentedness arising and you stay in that situation, then you're just allowing this contact and this craving in the mind to continue to arise painful feelings, for example. And if you don't have control of the mind, it can be really hard for you to cut that off and let it go. So because you know the goal is to cut off and let go any discontentedness in your observant of the mind and you can see those bodily sensations, now with this information of contact, you can just break contact, walk away, That'll allow you to more easily let go of that feeling as a bodily sensation. And now when you come back three minutes later or five minutes later, the mind is in a better condition to be able to now have this conversation. And this can be really helpful for you. Or maybe even you need to go away for longer than a few minutes. Maybe you need to let your neighbor know like, oh, you know, um, this isn't the best time for the conversation. Let me get back with you in a couple of days and we can discuss this later. Right. And that's better than staying in the conversation, getting angry, allowing that to come through your intention, speech, and actions. Now you damage your relationship with somebody who lives right next to you. So you can gain composure and gain discipline and control of the mind in this way. And then as you, as you do this over a certain period of time in certain situations, eventually when you get rid of the craving, desire, attachment that is arising this discontentedness, 
then you won't have to break contact because when there's no craving desire attachment in the mind then even when there's contact there won't be the arising of discontentedness it's the craving desire attachment with this contact that is arising the discontentedness so you might need to break contact go work on eliminating the craving and then you can have contact again when the craving is diminished or eliminated and this is kind of this transitionary period that the mind is in as you're working to eliminate craving desire attachment and get more discipline of the mind and then eventually you get to the point where these craving desire attachments aren't in the mind so then you won't have any arising and even though somebody's being hateful or vindictive or maybe in the example that i gave about jan maybe these students are being disrespectful maybe they have real concerns about how the lecture was going maybe they couldn't see the projection screen or what have you but if they're being highly disrespectful and your mind is craving respect then you're going to be discontent in that situation so it's better to walk away maintain the composure and then come back and then continue that conversation even with them being disrespectful if you've eliminated the craving desire attachment and realize that you need to let that go then even with them being disrespectful and harsh you can still have a polite and professional conversation about what their concerns are if you're in a situation where you need to do that in some situations where someone's being impolite unkind unfriendly and disrespectful you can just end the conversation and not go back to it at all but in a professional environment like what we're describing as this example you may actually need to have that conversation and doing that without craving desire attachment can be helpful so breaking contact for a period of time eliminating the craving desire attachment allows you to maintain your composure and now have a more professional conversation which will produce better results for you than if you allow the mind to be angered in that situation what questions do you guys have on this uh it does not appear there are any questions at this time sir all right so we'll move to the next chapter which is chapter 25 the way to purity of ways the eightfold is the best and of true things the stage is for freedom from strong feelings is the best of things of humans best is he who sees this is the very way there is none else for seeing purity herein do you a fairing go the way to baffle mara this Herein, when you have faring gone, as end you'll come to make of ill, shown surely was the way by me, who ease from darts had come to know. Tis you the dedicated must work, the men so gone but show the way, who in their reflection, as they fare, from Mara's bonds find liberty. Transient is all men think and do, when, by this, when this by wisdom is discerned. Then does one turn away from ill, this is the way to purity. Painful is all men think and do, when this by wisdom is discerned, then does one turn away from ill, this is the way to purity. Without the self, men think and do, when this by wisdom is discerned, when then does one turn away from ill, this is the way to purity. All right, thank you, Miranda. So this chapter is from the Dhammapada. Here you can see that by the reference of DHP. And the Dhammapada is officially part of the Pali Canon, but the Dhammapada is very different than other things that we see in the Pali Canon. 
there's the sutras or the discourses of the teachings of the Buddha. This is what he actually spoke in his actual teachings. And then there's the uh, Dhammapada and there's other parts too, which are, are very different. The Dhammapada was written about a thousand years after the death of the Buddha. And this is scholars who were looking at his teachings in the discourses and they interpreted his discourses and they basically tried to summarize them in verse form and almost put them in this kind of poetic verse. So some people consider the Dhammapada the spoken words of the Buddha. But if you look at the Dhammapada and you understand its history and who wrote it, that it was written by scholars who were trying to summarize his teachings in verse form. They're not the actual words of the Buddha, but they show up in the Pali Canon because some people associate them that way. One of the things that you may or may not know about the scholarly community is they tend to be very interested in the historical impact of things and they kind of look at the historical significance of various things like teachings of the Buddha. They're not typically practitioners. They're more kind of like studying from afar. And in order to really understand the Buddhist teachings, you need to be a practitioner. This is where you actually cultivate the deep wisdom. So what we've got here is we've got a, an interpretation and a summary from people who weren't actually practicing the teachings of the Buddha. There's some of them, some of these uh, teachings from the Dhammapada that are like right on. They really explain some things and it's like, oh, wow, I can see how this really relates to the teachings of the Buddha. But there's other teachings from the Dhammapada that are really far from what the Buddha actually taught. Here, we've got this kind of like almost poetic kind of representation of some of his teachings. There's not really anything that you can kind of, you know, learn here, independently verify, and then practice in order to get the mind closer to enlightenment. But there's a couple of interesting teachings in the Dhammapada that are included here in this book series because it, it is kind of an interesting thing to look at and to study. And here you can see where they are talking about the Eightfold Path and they're saying, all right, this is the best teaching to understand things that are true. And there's these four stages of enlightenment that will lead to freedom from strong feelings, which is the best thing you could ever do. Humans who understand this and see this, they are this better human being, right? This is kind of like what they're going at. They're kind of summarizing and kind of discussing these things in verse form. These aren't the actual words of the Buddha, in my opinion. So I have very few chapters in here that are from the Dhammapada because they're not the true spoken words of the Buddha, in my opinion. But what I do, because these are kind of more words that are kind of like need to be interpreted, what I did is I, down here in the uh, description, I went verse by verse and I explained what it is that they're trying to explain. So as you guys have gotten familiar with how the Buddha speaks and how clear he is when he speaks, when you see these teachings like this that are in verse form and that are very poetic, you can know that these aren't the Buddha's words because he doesn't teach this way. He teaches very clearly, very directly, very concisely, very precise in the way that he words things. But this is other people looking at his teachings and trying to summarize them in verse form. So what I'll do is if you guys have read this, because you know it goes through and I explain each individual verse, if you guys have read this and you have questions, I'll just open up to any questions that you have. 
I also, in this chapter, explain why I don't really dive into the Dhammapada. This explanation here explains what I just explained about the scholarly community and how they're not really dedicated practitioners typically. So there's only so much that you can gain from some of these teachings from the Dhammapada. What I encourage students to do is to really focus on the suttas. That's the true discourses, the true spoken words of the Buddha. That's what you can learn, you can reflect, independently verify, you can practice and see the condition of the mind improving. These are just kind of unique, interesting ways to think about the teachings. And I've shared with you line by line what they're trying to explain here. So I'll just open up to any questions that you guys may or may not have about this chapter. It does not appear there are any questions at this time, sir. All right. So feel free to read that and you can see what each individual verse is for. And then we'll go to chapter 26. Yes, sir, let's go to Jan to read chapter 26, please. Thank you, Miranda. The Noble Eightfold Path, the way of practice leading to the elimination of discontentedness. And what monks is the noble truth of the way of practice leading to the elimination of discontentedness. It is just this noble eightfold path, namely right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. And what monks is right view? It is monks the wisdom of discontentedness, the wisdom of the cause of discontentedness, the wisdom of the elimination of discontentedness, and the wisdom of the way of practice leading to the elimination of discontentedness. This is called right view. And what monks is right intention? The intention of renunciation, the intention, intention of non-ill will, the intention of harmlessness. This monks is called right intention. And what monks is right speech? Refraining from lying, refraining from slander, refraining from harsh speech, refraining from frivolous speech. This is called right speech. And what monks is right action? Refraining from taking life, refraining from taking what is not given, refraining from sexual misconduct. This is called right action. And what monks is right livelihood? Here monks, the noble disciple, having given up wrong livelihood, keeps himself by right livelihood. And what monks is right effort? Here monks, a monk rouses his will, makes an effort, stirs up energy, exerts his mind, and strives to prevent the arising of unarisen, evil, unwholesome mental states. He rouses his will, makes an effort, stirs up energy, exerts his mind, and strives to overcome evil, unwholesome mental states that have arisen. He rouses his will, makes an effort, stirs up energy, exerts his mind, and strives to produce unarisen, wholesome mental states. He rouses his will, makes an effort, stirs up energy, exerts his mind, and strives to maintain wholesome mental states that have arisen, not to let them fade away, to bring them to greater growth, to the full perfection of development. This is called right effort. And what monks is right mindfulness? Here monks, a monk residing, reflecting on body as body, dedicated, clearly aware and mindful, having put aside craving and worry for the world, he resides, reflecting on feelings as feelings, 
dedicated, clearly aware and mindful, having put aside craving and worry for the world, he resides reflecting on mind as mind, dedicated, clearly aware and mindful, having put aside craving and worry for the world, he resides reflecting on mental objects as mental objects, dedicated, clearly aware and mindful, having put aside craving and worry for the world. This is called right mindfulness. And what monks is right concentration? Here a monk distant from sense desires, distant from unwholesome mental states, enters and resides in the first jhana, which is with thinking and pondering, based in seclusion, filled with excitement and joy. And with the subsiding of thinking and pondering, by gaining inner tranquility and oneness of mind, he enters and resides in the second jhana, which is without thinking and pondering, based in concentration, filled with excitement and joy. And with the fading away of excitement, remaining imperturbable, unable to be excited or upset or excited, calm, serene, mindful and clearly aware, he experiences in himself the joy of which the noble ones say, peaceful is he who resides with equanimity and mindfulness. He enters the third jhana, and having given up pleasure and pain, and with the fading away of former gladness and sadness, he enters and resides in the fourth jhana, which is beyond pleasure and pain, purified by equanimity and mindfulness. This is called right concentration. And that monks is called the way of practice leading to the elimination of discontentedness. Okay, thank you, Jan. So here you can see the true words of a Buddha that is just sharing the true teachings and very clear, very concise in the way that he speaks. This Eightfold Path is the core central teaching of the Buddha and all of his other teachings plug into this. This is the path to enlightenment. A practitioner who is interested in attaining enlightenment through the Buddhist teachings would need to know this very detailed, backwards, forwards, left, right, up, down, like the back of your hand. And I explore this and teach this as part of the group learning program that I teach on Sundays and Wednesdays. And we just did the chapter of volume one, which is chapter five, which explores this in detail and goes through that. So typically in this program, when we get to the Eightfold Path, what I usually do is just open up to any questions you guys have because students have typically already studied the group learning program with me and have learned the Eightfold Path, but you need to really tweak it and get better and better at it. So I like to just kind of open up to any questions that you guys may or may not have on the Eightfold Path at this point. Um, yes, sir. When a practitioner notices they are getting closer to practicing each step of the Noble Eightfold Path, is that the time to apply even more right effort to all aspects, bringing them closer to being practiced perfectly with the understanding they will not all be practiced perfectly until the practitioner attains the fourth stage of enlightenment, sir? Well, you actually can practice this perfectly before you get to the first stage of enlightenment and you have to practice it perfectly before you get to the first stage of enlightenment. So what you do is you ramp your practice up closer and closer to perfecting and mastering the Eightfold Path. And then once you've perfected and mastered the Eightfold Path, you're practicing that for an extended period of time and you're burning off any unwholesome gamma that's coming back to you because you've made decisions in the past that are going to be coming back to you. But now when you encounter those situations, you're encountering them through the Eightfold Path and you're practicing this Eightfold Path. 
And now when you go for an extended period of time of having perfected the Eightfold Path in your eliminating the 10 fetters, that's when the mind gets to enlightenment. So there's a perfection of the Eightfold Path as you get to the first stage of enlightenment, that wrong behaviors and wrong observances that the Buddha talks about as the third fetter of the 10 fetters. By the time you get to the first stage of enlightenment, you've perfected the full path. All of these teachings here, you deeply understand them, you deeply know them, you're deeply practicing them on a consistent basis. And that's where I say like the first stage of enlightenment is like getting to base camp, that you've done all the fundamental learning and you develop this practice such that you're deeply practicing the full path. And then from there forward, it's just a matter of eliminating all the fetters from the mind and doing this stuff enough that you deeply train the mind by now executing this. So by the time someone gets to the first stage, they will already deeply understand this and be deeply practicing it. But they just need to do it for an extended period of time to get enough training of the mind and to burn off enough of their unwholesome gamma that the mind then moves into the enlightened mental state. Thank you, sir. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jan has her hand raised. Let's go to her. Thank you, Miranda. Teacher David, I noticed that some of the um, paragraphs here are longer than others. For example, right effort is quite a bit longer. Right mindfulness, right con- concentration, um, quite a bit longer. And I'm just curious um, to hear your ideas about why there's more content in these parts of the path yes yeah so when a buddha is teaching you know they're not going to necessarily try to have more or less content in any one particular part of the eightfold path he's just sharing what the true teachings are and as part of right view he's just pointing to the four noble truths and then the four noble truths are an expansion so that you can understand what right view is And then something like right livelihood here he's just basically referencing right livelihood but in other parts of his teachings he expands upon what right livelihood is where with right effort and right mindfulness and these others he's just explaining what that is so he's not necessarily trying to put more content or less content in one particular place he's just organizing it in such a way that students can understand what the eightfold path is and then bring in and connect the various teachings that they need in order to fully flush this out and be able to practice it. Thank you, sir. Yes. In addition to that, what I would share is these three steps are the mental discipline of the Eightfold Path. And if anything that you learn from the Buddhist teachings, of course, there's generosity, there's moral conduct, there's meditation. That's the way of practice. But what you're really truly doing on this path to enlightenment is you're training the mind, you're gaining this mental discipline. So it makes sense to me that the mental discipline part of the Eightfold Path is so detailed and so exhaustive. But what I said earlier, you know, essentially stands that like you're not trying to necessarily make one part short and one part long. He's just explaining the Eightfold Path and whatever it is, that's what it is. It does not appear there are any more questions at this time, sir. All right. So now chapter 27. Is this a really long chapter? Yep. About two and a quarter pages. Reflection on every step can be liberation to Nibbana, enlightenment. 
Certainly, monks, I say, fetter destruction, taints, depends on the first jhana, the second jhana, the third jhana, the fourth jhana, the sphere of infinite space, the sphere of infinite consciousness, the sphere of nothingness, the sphere of neither perception nor non-perception, the ending of perception and feeling. Monks, it is said, I say so, fetter destruction depends on the first jhana, and for what reason is this said? Consider the monk who, distant from sense desires, distant from evil ideas, enters and resides in the first jhana, which is with thinking and pondering, based in seclusion, filled with excitement and joy. Whatever occurs there of form, feeling, perception, volitional formations, choices and decisions, or consciousness, he sees wholly as impermanent objects, as discontentedness, as a disease, a boil, a stint, a hurt, an affliction, as something alien, inferior, empty, not the self. He turns his mind away from such objects and, having done so, brings the mind towards the deathless element, enlightened with the thought, this is the peace, this is the summit, just this, the stilling of the mind activity, the renouncing of all rebirth, the destroying of craving, calm, ending, the cool, and steadfast therein, he wins to fetter destruction, if not wins to fetter destruction, just by reason of that teaching energy, that teaching sweetness, he snaps the five lower fetters and, being not subject to return from that world, heavenly realm, becomes completely cool there. Monks, suppose an archer or his student were to practice on a straw man or heap of clay. Presently, he would become a long shot, a rapid shot, piercer of great thicknesses. Even so, monks, the monk who is distant from sense desires, is distant from evil ideas, enters and resides in the first jhana, wherein applied and sustained thought works, which is with thinking and pondering, based in seclusion, filled with excitement and joy. Certainly, monks, it is said, I say, fetter destruction depends on the first jhana, and it is for this reason that it is said. <clears throat> In the case of fetter destruction, depending on the second jhana, the third jhana, the fourth jhana, the perfectly enlightened one spoke similar to that, similarly to that of the first jhana. Monks, it is said, I say so, fetter destruction depends on the sphere of infinite space. And for what reason is this said? By passing wholly beyond perceptions of form, by the passing away of the perceptions of sense reactions, unattentive to the perceptions of the many, he enters and resides in the sphere of infinite space, thinking space is infinite. In the sphere of infinite space and sees form, feeling, perception, volitional formations, or consciousness, he sees wholly as impermanent objects as discontentedness, as a disease, a boil, a sting, a hurt, an affliction, as something alien, inferior, empty, not the self, turns his mind away from that and brings it towards the deathless element with the thought, this is the peace, this is the summit, just this, the stilling of mind activity, the renouncing of all rebirth basis, the destroying of craving, calm, ending, the cool, winds to fetter destruction or snapping the five lower fetters is born spontaneously and becomes completely cool. And steadfast therein, he wins to fetter destruction, 
if not wins to fetter destruction, just by reason of that teaching energy, that teaching sweetness, he snaps the five lower fetters and is born spontaneously and being not subject to return from that world, becomes completely cool there. Monks, suppose an archer or his student were to practice on a straw man or heap of clay. Presently, he would become a long shot, a rapid shot, a piercer of great thicknesses. Even so, monks, the monk who, by passing wholly beyond perceptions of form, by the passing away of the perceptions of sense reactions, unattentive to the perceptions of the many, he enters and resides in the sphere of infinite space, thinking, space is infinite. Certainly, monks, it is said, I say, better destruction depends on the sphere of infinite space, and for this reason that it, it is said, in the case of fetter destruction, depending on the sphere of infinite consciousness, the sphere of nothingness, the perfectly enlightened one also spoke similarly to that of the sphere of infinite space. Thus, monks, as far as reflection prevails, there is penetrative wisdom. Moreover, monks, those spheres, both the attainer, attainment of the sphere of neither perception nor non-perception, and the ending of perception and feeling, are ones which, I say, ought to be properly made known by those who are in the jhanas, skilled in the attainment, skilled in emerging from there, after they have attained and emerged from there. All right. Thank you, Miranda. So here the Buddha is talking about these attainments that are experienced as you move closer and closer to enlightenment, and particularly the Eightfold Path that was the previous chapter. That's what's going to lead you to experiencing these jhanas. The four jhanas, these are preliminary phases that the mind goes through before it experiences the first stage of enlightenment. And here, this is why what I share is that a beginning practitioner should focus on the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, the Five Precepts, really developing their meditation practice and the other teachings that I share that are the core and central teachings because as the mind starts experiencing the jhanas, that's how you know you're putting all that stuff together well. And the Buddha explains in the Eightfold Path what you're going to be experiencing in the mind as it's moving into the first, second, third, and fourth jhanas. This is kind of like the light bulb starting to flicker, and you're starting to get glimpses of what enlightenment is like as the mind moves into the jhanas. Those are the four preliminary phases that the mind goes through. And the Buddha says here, similarly to what I share, is that essentially that the jhanas are a precursor to focusing on the elimination of the 10 fetters, that as an individual starts experiencing the jhanas, that kind of has prepared the mind to now be able to focus on the elimination of the 10 fetters. Because one of the things that happens in the jhanas is there's this unification of mind or this oneness of mind. Prior to experiencing the jhanas, there's a conscious mind and there's a subconscious mind. And there's pollution in here. But the conscious mind is just the, the part of the mind that a person has awareness of. The subconscious mind, it has pollution, but the practitioner isn't necessarily aware of the subconscious. But it is the conscious mind in the subconscious mind that motivates certain intentions, speech, and actions. So there's a real problem in the unenlightened mind that there's this subconscious mind that you're unaware of 
and it's polluted, but yet it's motivating intention, speech, and actions. This is where sometimes you might say something and you're like, that was stupid of me. Where did that come from? Why did I just say that to that person? That wasn't very kind or that wasn't very polite. Why did I say that? Because the conscious mind understands that it was rude or impolite, but the subconscious mind being polluted that you're unaware of has motivated this certain intention, speech, or action. So what happens in the jhanas is you get this unification of mind or this oneness of mind where there's no longer a subconscious mind and the practitioner has full awareness of the entire mind. And this is what you need in order to eliminate the fetters. You wouldn't be able to eliminate all the 10 fetters and all the pollutions of mind if there was still this subconscious mind that was motivating things and it was polluted, but yet you couldn't access it in order to observe the pollution in that part of the mind and then uproot it and purify it. It's kind of like if you were cleaning out a house and there was a particular room that had a lock on the door and you've cleaned the entire house, but yet there's this one room that you can't get into and it's utterly dirty and you just can't get into it because the door is locked. So you wouldn't be able to have a completely clean house because there's this one room that's got a locked door. So what happens in the jhanas is you get this unification of mind where essentially you open up this one area of the mind that's locked and now you can clean out the whole house. So that's why the Buddha is saying here that the attainment of these jhanas is essentially required in order to get to enlightenment. He's saying, I say fetter destruction depends on you know, the attainment of these essentially. Is what he's sharing. These other attainments, these are other attainments that I don't necessarily teach in detail, although I explain them in the books, what they are, so that a practitioner knows what they are. But I don't necessarily teach it because it's a lot of detail to teach every single little aspect of what these attainments are. And you don't necessarily need to know what they are, because as you're practicing the Eightfold Path and you're eliminating the Ten Fetters, you will be experiencing the jhanas. You may experience uh, certain attainments like these, but you don't, there's nothing extra. There's nothing special that you need to do in order to experience these attainments. But as you're experiencing things and you're not quite sure what the mind's experiencing, you might observe that it's from these attainments. For example, one of these attainments relates to observing your past lives. And some people observe their past lives and some people don't. So there's nothing special that you need to do in order to observe your past lives. It's just through practicing the Eightfold Path, gradually awakening the mind that you will experience that if it's going to be experienced, that there's nothing special you need to do. So down here, I think it's in this chapter. No, it's not in this chapter. There's another chapter in another book where I've explained all of these attainments so that you'll understand what they are and how the mind experiences them. And then there's places where I've explained all four of these jhanas and the Buddha does that as well so that you know deeply what these jhanas are because it does help you as you're moving through the jhanas to at least be aware of the various qualities of mind that are experienced in each of these jhanas so that you know that you're moving along the right path and you're getting closer and closer to the first stage of enlightenment because if your mind gets bogged down in the jhanas, it can be actually detrimental to you because with the mind being in the jhanas, you can actually regress out of the jhanas. 
But once you get into the first stage of enlightenment, you can't regress backwards from there. So when you start experiencing the jhanas, the feelings in the mind, the experience is so amazing comparative to when the mind is unenlightened that some people actually mistakenly believe they're enlightened when they're actually experiencing the jhanas. And that's dangerous to the mind because the mind can become complacent and then it can regress out of the jhanas and go backwards. Whereas if you understand that, oh, these are just the jhanas, let me stay focused on the first, second, third, fourth stage of enlightenment, eliminating the fetters. Now you can move through the jhanas and you can get to the first, second, third, fourth stage of enlightenment. So it's helpful to learn these and the way to learn them is when you're starting to experience them, to then start reading the words of the Buddha in the Eightfold Path where he's explaining them very deeply and very detailed. Trying to learn them before you're experiencing them, okay, you can try to do that if you like, but when you're actually experiencing it and you're reading the words of the Buddha, it'll make a lot more sense to you and it'll be more deeply rooted in the mind that you'll understand it much better because not only are you reading it, but you're experiencing it. And this is what really helps you to remove any doubt about the teachings and doubt about the Buddha, because that's one of the fetters that you need to eliminate in order to get to the first stage of enlightenment. So as you're experiencing the jhanas, which aren't the first stage of enlightenment yet, and there still might be some doubt about the teachings in the mind, but as you're starting to experience the jhanas, and here you're reading the words of the Buddha that he spoke 2,500 years ago, and he's describing to you what you're experiencing right now today with the jhanas, that pretty much erodes any doubt whatsoever about these teachings. Because how could this man 2,500 years ago speak words that explain what you're experiencing today and he not be a Buddha? How could he not be a Buddha when his words are explaining what it is that you're experiencing today. And his teachings are what led you to those experiences in terms of what you're experiencing in the jhanas. So this can really help to eliminate any residual doubt that may exist, which ultimately helps you get more firmly rooted into that first stage of enlightenment. So that's where I usually suggest that you start looking more closely at the descriptions of the jhanas when you're actually experiencing them. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Jan has her hand raised. Let's go to her, sir. Thank you, Miranda. Teacher David, um, since this begins by saying fetter destruction depends on, would it be wise um, in the jhanas to really focus on these taints and uprooting them? That's where I suggest that people opportunity to uproot them. Yeah, that's where I suggest that people focus most in detail on the ten fetters. You know, I introduced the ten fetters at the very beginning of the group learning program, and I help people to understand what they are because things like conceit, you can really be working on that all the way through. Things like sensual desire, of course, you can be working on that all the way through. And there's others like that that you can be working on all the way through. In fact, you would need to be developing the Eightfold Path, which is part of wrong observances and wrong behaviors, in order to get to the jhanas. So it's not that you have to wait for the jhanas before you focus on the ten fetters at all. It's more about where do you really put the most effort into learning the ten fetters. It's once you get into the 
the jhana. So initially, you're learning and practicing the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, the Five Precepts. You're developing your meditation practice, all these different things. You're getting personal guidance on how to apply these to your daily life. And then as you start getting that under your belt, you feel like it's well digested. You're starting to really put these pieces together. That's where it's time to really focus most detailed on the 10 fetters, but there should already be a preliminary understanding of the 10 fetters even when you first get started. That's why it's in chapter three of volume one so that you can at least have some familiarity with the uh, 10 fetters because you can really be working on them all the way through, but it's not until you get to the jhanas that you really just put them under a microscope and really focus on them really closely. Thank you. Mm-hmm. It does not appear there are any more questions at this time, sir. All right. So speaking of the Four Noble Truths, chapter 28. Yes, let's go to Jan for chapter 28. Thank you, Miranda. The Four Noble Truths. Monks, there are these Four Noble Truths. What for? The Noble Truth of Discontentedness. The Noble Truth of the Cause of Discontentedness. The Noble Truth of the Elimination of Discontentedness. The noble truth of the way leading to the elimination of discontentedness. And what monks is the noble truth of discontentedness? It should be said, the five aggregates subject to clinging, that is, the form aggregate subject to clinging, the feeling aggregate subject to clinging, the perception aggregate subject to clinging, the volitional formation aggregate subject to clinging, the consciousness aggregate subject to clinging, this is called the noble truth of discontentedness. And what monks is the noble truth of the cause of discontentedness? It is this craving which leads to renewed existence, accompanied by excitement and desire, seeking excitement here and there, that is craving for sensual pleasures, craving for existence, craving for extermination. This is called the noble truth of the cause of discontentedness. And what monks is the noble truth of the elimination of discontentedness. It is the remainderless fading away and elimination of the same craving, the giving up and letting go of it, freedom from it, non-reliance on it. This is called the noble truth of the elimination of discontentedness. And what monks is the noble truth of the way leading to the elimination of discontentedness? It is this noble eightfold path that is right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. This is called the noble truth of the way leading to the elimination of discontentedness. These monks are the four noble truths. Therefore monks, an effort should be made to understand this is discontentedness. An effort should be made to understand this is the cause of discontentedness. An effort should be made to understand this is the elimination of discontentedness. An effort should be made to understand this is the way leading to the elimination of discontentedness. All right. Thank you, Jan. So here we've got the Four Noble Truths in the words of the Buddha. In the group learning program and in volume one, I summarize this in a way that's easily able to help you establish right view and start moving forward with your practice and developing right view as that first step on the Eightfold Path. But I also include in that first volume and then in these other volumes, 
the words of the Buddha in terms of the Four Noble Truths, because while the teachings that I share on the Four Noble Truths help you get started and moving in the right direction to establish right view, it's really the words of the Buddha of the Four Noble Truths that gives you a deeper understanding of what the Four Noble Truths are. And you're going to need to know both of those. The way that I describe the Four Noble Truths gets you started moving in the right direction. But then here he kind of elaborates on the Four Noble Truths and he explains it in his words, which tends to be a little bit more challenging for a beginning practitioner to understand because there's something here in the first Noble Truth related to the five aggregates. So there needs to be this understanding of what the five aggregates are in order to understand that particular Noble Truth. And the others have a bit more words in them than the way that I've summarized them. So I've described these Four Noble Truths in the way that the Buddha uses them and describes them here so that you can then understand, you know, what are the five aggregates and understanding the first noble truth, the second noble truth, and so on. So what I'll do is I'll just open up to any questions that you guys might have on the four noble truths here, because it is important to understand these in the way that the Buddha described them. And typically what I do as I'm working with a student in personal discussions, that where I see that introducing and helping them understand the Four Noble Truths in the way that the Buddha explains them. If you're encountering a certain situation where you really need to know them, I will ensure that you're looking at the Four Noble Truths in the way that the Buddha explains them. Uh, Because he provides a, a deeper level of understanding than what I share in terms of the summaration of these. So what questions do you guys have on the Four Noble Truths? Jan has her hand raised. Let's go to her, sir. Thank you, Miranda. Teacher David, would you just clarify um, craving for extermination? Sure. What that is, is somebody who's interested in dying, committing suicide. So he's basically saying this is one of the causes of discontentedness, is that if somebody's craving to exist in the world, then that's going to cause discontentedness. But also if someone's craving to die, you know, someone who's suicidal, that's going to cause discontentedness as well because of that craving to not live, then that means their existence is going to be, they're going to be experiencing discontentedness. Thank you. Mm -hmm. It does not appear there are any other questions at this time, sir. All right. So let's move to the next one. Be sure to read that thoroughly. I, I put a lot of detail in there about how the Buddha teaches the Four Noble Truths. Chapter 29. The Four Noble Truths and Dependent Origination. And what monks is the noble truth of discontentedness? Birth is discontentedness, aging, sickness, death, sorrow, grief, pain, displeasure, and despair are discontentedness. Not to get what one desires is discontentedness. In short, the five aggregates based on clinging are discontentedness. And what, monks, is the noble truth of the arising of discontentedness? Conditioned by ignorance, unknowing of true reality, the volitional formations, choices, and decisions come to be. Conditioned by the volitional activities, consciousness. Conditioned by consciousness, name and form. Conditioned by name and form, the six sense bases. Conditioned by the six sense bases, contact. Conditioned by contact, feeling. Conditioned by feeling, craving. Conditioned by craving, clinging. Conditioned by clinging, existence. Conditioned by existence, birth. 
Conditioned by birth, aging and death, sorrow, grief, pain, displeasure, and despair come to pass. This is the arising of the whole mass of discontentedness. This, monks, is called the noble truth of the arising of discontentedness. And what, monks, is the noble truth of the elimination of discontentedness? From the complete fading out and ending of ignorance comes the ending of the volitional formations. From the ending of the volitional formations, the ending of consciousness. From the ending of consciousness, the ending of name and form. From the ending of name and form, the ending of the six sense bases. From the ending of the six sense bases, the ending of contact. From the ending of contact, the ending of feeling. From the ending of feeling, the ending of craving. From the ending of craving, the ending of clinging. From the ending of clinging, the ending of existence. From the ending of existence, the ending of birth. From the ending of birth, aging and death, sorrow, grief, pain, displeasure, and despair comes the ending of this whole mass of discontentedness. This, monks, is called the elimination of discontentedness. And what, monks, is the noble truth of the practice that leads to the elimination of discontentedness? It is just this noble eightfold path, right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. This is called the noble truth of the practice that leads to the elimination of discontentedness. All right. Thank you, Miranda. So if you think about the Four Noble Truths as three different versions, there's these three different versions that you're going to need to understand in order to fully understand the Four Noble Truths. The first version is the one that I share in Volume 1 and in the group learning program, the summarization of the Four Noble Truths. Then there's the one that we just studied previously, which are the words of the Buddha explaining the Four Noble Truths. Then there's this one where he's combining dependent origination with the Four Noble Truths to more deeply understand what he's describing as the cause of discontentedness, the elimination, and so forth. Because this is a common way that the Buddha teaches, is he teaches in these layers, right? He kind of pulls back more and more layers to help you see deeper and deeper to understand the true teachings and the true problem of the mind. So the Four Noble Truths that I share in that summarized version, what you walk away with is that all unenlightened beings are going to experience discontentedness, the cause of discontentedness is craving, desire, attachment. The mind's craving for permanence when everything is impermanent. The third noble truth is that the elimination of discontentedness is possible by eliminating craving, desire, attachment. And the path forward is to the eightfold path. That's what's going to eliminate discontentedness. So you walk away with this right view of understanding you're causing your own discontentedness and it's craving, desire, attachment that's causing it. Then there's the one that the Buddha shares, which you start to understand the five aggregates and the clinging and the various types of cravings and things like that. And then there's this one, which prior to learning this one, you should really learn dependent origination, which is in volume five, chapter 14. And in there, the Buddha explains dependent origination and I explain it as well. The dependent origination is the highest natural law. It's the ultimate truth of the Buddhist teachings. While the Four Noble Truths kind of encapsulates and really magnifies and puts under a microscope what the real cause of discontentedness is, it's dependent origination that's really fully explaining the problem. 
it's not only explaining the problem of the discontent mind, it's also explaining the cycle of rebirth and why beings are stuck in the cycle of rebirth. So here he's combining these things together that help you see more clearly because what you typically understand as part of the second noble truth is that it's craving desire attachment that's causing discontentedness. That's the cause. That's the second noble truth. But here, what he's showing you at a deeper level by combining dependent origination with the Four Noble Truths is what the real problem that unenlightened beings are experiencing is this ignorance or this unknowing of true reality. That's what is causing the mind to stay stuck in the unenlightened state. Craving desire attachment is causing discontentedness. But why is craving desire attachment still exist in the mind? Well, because of ignorance and the unknowing of true reality. Because unenlightened beings, they don't understand what they don't understand. They haven't practiced in such a way that they have the wisdom to eliminate craving desire attachment because they don't even know that it's craving desire attachment that's causing anger and sadness and all these other discontent feelings. So while we hone in on it in that summarized version of the Four Noble Truths so that a student can very quickly understand that it's craving desire attachment, this mental longing, strong eagerness that is causing the discontentedness. Well, the reason why craving desire attachment persists is because of the ignorance, the unknowing of true reality. And it's only wisdom that can antidote that. And the only way to get to wisdom is to not believe the teachings, is to learn, to reflect, independently verifying them in the practice to see the truth for yourself. So that's what the real problem that all unenlightened beings are experiencing is this unknowing of true reality. And that's why investigating the teachings of the Buddha, not believing them, but independently verifying them and practicing them, that you see the truth and you gain this wisdom and you unravel this whole problem that the mind is experiencing. Because when you solve the discontentedness in the mind by eliminating the conditions that are causing it, when you get to enlightenment, not only have you eliminated discontentedness, but you've eliminated the conditions that are causing this cycle of rebirth. And that's what he's helping you to see here is this deeper understanding of what's really, truly causing discontentedness. Yes, it's craving desire attachment, which is the real cause. But at a much higher level, in a much deeper understanding, it's the ignorance. Because without the wisdom to antidote the ignorance, you would never know that craving desire attachment is the cause. So you wouldn't actually be able to address it. So that's the top line problem is the ignorance. That's why it's the ultimate truth, the highest natural law, because he goes through in 12 statements and he shows you from ignorance exactly why you're not only experiencing discontentedness, but why you're experiencing rebirth. So then what you walk away with is you walk away with understanding that you need wisdom. That's the ultimate goal is to get to wisdom. And if you can get to wisdom, that's what's going to unravel all of this and get to the mind to the point where it's enlightened, experiencing peaceful calm, serene consent with joy and no longer experiencing any rebirth. So that's why he's combining it here. So understanding those three different types of the Four Noble Truths will help you progress in your understanding and deepen your wisdom of what the true problem is. And when you understand what the true problem is, then you'll take action to actually fix it. If you didn't know what the problem is, you wouldn't be able to fix it. So that's what the Buddha's 
helping you to see here what the true problems are so that then you can take action to fix them. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? It does not appear there are any questions at this time, sir. All right. So we go to the last chapter for today. Yes, let's go to Jan to read chapter 30, sir. Thank you, Miranda. A stream enterer is worth more than being a wheel-turning monarch. Monks, although a wheel-turning monarch, having exercised supreme sovereign rulership over the four continents with the breakup of the body after death, is reborn in a good destination, in a heavenly world, in the company of the heavenly beings of the heavenly realm, and there in the Nandana Grove, accompanied by an entourage of heavenly nymphs, he enjoys himself, supplied and endowed with the five cords of heavenly sensual pleasure. Still, as he does not possess four things, he is not freed from hell, the animal realm, and the realm of afflicted spirits, not freed from the plane of misery, the bad destinations, the netherworld. Although monks, a noble disciple, maintains himself by lumps of alms food and wears rag robes, still, as he possesses four things, he is freed from hell, the animal realm, and the realm of afflicted spirits, freed from the plane of misery, the bad destinations, the netherworld. What are the four? Here, monks, the noble disciple possesses confirmed confidence in the Buddha, thus, the Tathagata is an arahant, perfectly enlightened, accomplished in true wisdom and conduct, fortunate, knower of the worlds, unsurpassed leader of persons to be tamed, teacher of heavenly beings and humans, the enlightened one, the fortunate one. He possesses confirmed confidence in the teachings thus. The teachings are well expounded by the perfectly enlightened one, directly visible, immediate, inviting one to come and see, applicable to be personally experienced by the wise. He possesses confirmed confidence in the community thus. The community of the perfectly enlightened one's disciples is practicing the wholesome way, practicing the straight way, practicing the true way, practicing the proper way. That is, the four pairs of persons, the eight types of individuals. This community of the perfectly enlightened one's disciples is worthy of gifts, worthy of hospitality, worthy of offerings, worthy of respectful salutation, the unsurpassed field of merit for the world. He possesses the virtues, moral conduct, dear to the noble ones, unbroken, untorn, unblemished, unblotched, liberating, praised by the wise, not misunderstood, and leading to concentration. He possesses these four things, and monks, between the obtaining of sovereignty over the four continents and the obtaining of the four things, the obtaining of sovereignty over the four continents is not worth the 16th part of the obtaining of the four things. All right. Thank you, Jan. So here, let's talk about what a wheel-turning monarch is. This is a person who is uh, a leader, you know, during the lifetime of the Buddha, it would have been a king or somebody in a position of power like that, that is actually ruling over their kingdom based on the teachings of the Buddha. And kind of, you know, 
managing the population of people based on what they understand of these natural laws of existence and the natural law of gamma. This would be very beneficial for a population of people to have a leader in a leadership position that understands the Buddhist teachings to a certain degree and is leading the population of people based on the words of the Buddha and his teachings. That would be very beneficial for that community. And let me just share this, is that in that situation, that person would be able to influence and help many people perhaps 10,000, 50,000, 500,000, however many people are in the kingdom. And the Buddha is saying, okay, you know, of course, this will turn martyr, they're beneficial for the world. But he's sharing that this stream enterer, someone who's in the first stage of enlightenment, is actually more beneficial for the world than this person. So just one stream enterer who's attained this stage of enlightenment is actually more beneficial than this person who can kind of rule over several thousands of people in doing so with the teachings of the Buddha as part of the way that they lead the population. And the reason why is that by having beings in your population of people who are in the first, second, third, or fourth stage of enlightenment, this is going to be beneficial for everybody. Because when you have somebody who's practicing to that level of degree, they're going to be interacting with shop owners, with people that are in service roles, the neighbors, friends, family, and people kind of learn the teachings a bit just by interacting with this person. They might not know this person is a stream enter, and this person may not be actively teaching somebody, but just by having them in your community and interacting in ways where they're practicing something like the Eightfold Path, they're not causing harm through the conduct that they're practicing as part of the Eightfold Path. So therefore, there's less harm in the population of people when there's a stream enterer, for example. But a wheel-turning monarch isn't necessarily a stream enterer, so they're still going to be making some unwholesome decisions. They're still not going to be making uh, decisions that are 100% based on the teachings of the Buddha. And a stream enterer isn't going to be making decisions 100% based on the teachings of the Buddha either. But they would have drastically diminished the harm that they're causing So therefore, there's less harm in the population of people and people will kind of gradually be influenced by this person being in the population. So in a population of people where there's a large number of stream enterers or once returners or non-returners or arahants, a place like here in Thailand where we've got people who are dedicated to learning and practicing the teachings and you've got people that are have attained various stages of enlightenment, this is where you see a lot of peacefulness within the kingdom of Thailand because there's so many people who are actively participating in learning and practicing these teachings. So you get a lot of peacefulness where there's not people that are actively looking to harm each other very much. It's very few and far between that you see that. So that's why you don't see very many murders in Thailand. You don't see a lot of problems like that. People live fairly peacefully. But in an environment and in a population of people where there isn't a wheel-turning monarch and there aren't stream enterers or other people in these stages of enlightenment, you're going to see a lot of hostility, a lot of aggression, a lot of bitterness, a lot of harming each other in this population of people. So by a population of people learning these teachings and bringing these teachings into a population that is struggling and is not living harmoniously, what you'll see is that more and more people in that population of people will start living 
more peacefully and more contently. And it's these stream enters and once returners and non-returners and otter hunts that they themselves are developing their practice to that point that now when they interact with their parents, their like partners, their children, their neighbors, their coworkers, they'll start functioning in more wholesome ways and people will take note, even though they don't know that you're a Buddhist practitioner or that you're a once returner or any of these other stages of enlightenment. They'll just observe how you speak and how you conduct yourself and how your mind's always calm and they will start to model that conduct and that behavior. And they may even ask you, you know, why is your mind always so peaceful? You never seem to get shaken up. And that's kind of like an open door for you to then be able to help them maybe perhaps get started on the path to enlightenment. So the Buddha here is saying that a stream enter is worth more than a wheel turning monarch. And one of the things that a stream enter has accomplished is confidence in the Buddha, confidence in his teachings, confidence in the community, and then they're practicing this virtuous moral conduct. So he's saying these are very important qualities in a person who's making their way to enlightenment. And one of the things I would like to point out about this particular one that he's describing here about virtuous moral conduct is oftentimes we don't necessarily associate our moral conduct with how the mind functions. But let me explain this to you now that we've discussed the Eightfold Path where as part of right action, he talked about not killing, not stealing, and not having sexual misconduct. If someone is killing, if someone is stealing, if someone is having sexual misconduct, the mind is cluttered, it's polluted, it's having difficulties in the world. It's not going to have focus, concentration, clarity of mind, and deep memory. So by cleaning up your moral conduct, that's one of the things that's actually going to lead to this improved concentration. And you can see it here that the Buddha is connecting those for you. And you can see it in your own practice that as you improve your moral conduct and you're cleaning up the harms that you're causing through your intention, speech and actions, for example, in your livelihood, that it leads to concentration. That's what he's explaining to you. That yes, it's meditation, it's the four foundations of mindfulness, it's all these other things that you need to be learning and practicing in terms of the mental discipline in order to get to concentration. But you should always understand that cleaning up your moral conduct, that's gonna lead to improved concentration as well. Because for someone who does killing, for stealing or sexual misconduct, the mind knows that it's doing these things and it's going to lack concentration. It's going to lack focus when we're causing harm in the world through our conduct, for example. So this is one of the ways you get to concentration is not just through all the other teachings that we explain. And that's why you see moral conduct as part of the Eightfold Path. Because as long as we're causing harm through our moral conduct, it's going to be very difficult for you to get to peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, this enlightened mental state, because you're continuing to put out harm in the world. So harm is going to continue to come back to you. So sometimes people look at moral conduct and something like the five precepts and other things as rules or commandments or things like this. But you can start seeing how that's not what they are at all is in fact what they are is by you learning that wholesome moral conduct as guidance and by you eliminating those decisions that are leading to harms 
that would be caused if you weren't practicing something like the five precepts by you cleaning up your moral conduct it also cleans up the mind because you're now more interested in practicing wholesome moral conduct and it's going to lead to beneficial results for you where you'll see this more focus this more concentration and clarity of mind that comes into the mind as you're cleaning up your moral conduct so these things all go together sometimes people think about religions even though i don't think of the buddhist teachings as religion they think about it as kind of imposing this doctrine or this dogma or this you know controlling way of trying to control a population but that's not what the buddha is actually sharing here he's sharing that as you clean up your moral conduct and make wise decisions about how you interact with others in the world it's going to lead to your own benefit and your own concentration and then that's what's going to help you improve your life even more because in your career and in your personal life if you have more focus more concentration more clarity of mind and more more memory this is going to help you improve your life in your personal and professional relationships will blossom when you improve your moral conduct and you improve your mental discipline which requires you to have a certain amount of wisdom of how to do that so that's what the buddhist teachings are helping you to do and by a time somebody becomes a stream enter which is what he's talking about here they would have done a lot of cleaning up of their moral conduct and that's why he's saying okay this person is worth more than a wheel turning monarch this king who might be leading their kingdom in 50,000 people through these teachings okay that's fine that's great but this person who's done this work to improve their practice they're actually more valuable or more important in terms of more beneficial to the community he's not creating a pecking order by saying you know this person is better than this person he's just saying that it's more beneficial to the community to have a stream enter in the community versus a wheel turning monarch but of course all of these things are beneficial all of these things are helpful but he's just showing you how you getting to the first stage of enlightenment is you know even better than if you were a member of a royal family and leading 50,000 people or 100,000 people or 200,000 people so it's a very important accomplishment to get to the first stage of enlightenment but don't stop there the goal is to get to enlightenment and be an arahant and you'll see that this improvement of the condition of mind is what you'll experience as you're getting closer and closer to that questions on this chapter yes jan has her hand raised let's go to her sir thank you miranda thank you teacher david um the, i'm sure the chapter relates to my question but it's not specific to this chapter but more my experience that i was describing being at this um, two-week session of training people there were many interactions each day uh, a large group of people uh, i found that when i was meditating um, I'm not sure how to describe it. I was able to meditate um, not quite as frequently as I'm used to. Meditation was deep and I was able to feel very still, but um, the mind had a lot of, it, it, it's like the, the this clutter, but it was way out here, you know, kind of fuzziness <laughs> because there were so many interactions, I think, happening. Um, so it, 
it wasn't um, upsetting at all to the mind, but it was um, took longer to come to stillness and meditation. I feel that this somehow relates to this chapter, being in the world, practicing, um, helping people did have an effect on the mind because of all of the things that are going on. It was a little um, challenging from time to time to come back and focus on one's individual practice, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And so it's a, I guess I do have sort of a question about that, just like to check in and um, know that this is uh, normal and see if there's any guidance in the future for dealing with situations like this, where there's this, all of this, you know, unusual um, contact with many, many people and, and how to manage that when it, it's not upsetting the mind, but it's just kind of noticeable that um, in meditation or in quiet moments, there's there's this um, feeling of lots of things mm -hmm. <laughs> kind of outside one's self. Yeah, this is normal for a mind that's in transition and it's not yet enlightened is that there's still craving, desire, attachment there. So the mind's burdened by that and you find it challenging in those situations because there's so many things going on. And the best thing that you can do in that situation is just take one thing at a time, that singleness of mind. So if a student comes to you and has a question, you just handle that. Even though there's two or three students waiting, you're not looking at them. You're not necessarily thinking about what they're going to say. You're not thinking about your next lecture that you're going to have. You just focus on that one conversation and addressing that particular student and what their question is. So when you've got lots of things going on, the unenlightened mind wants to hurry up and run. And it thinks that if it gets through all of these things, that it'll get to the other side of this. And that's where the peacefulness is. If I can just get through this 10 days, if I can just get through these five days, then everything will be peaceful. But what an enlightened mind is going to do is be peaceful all the way through. So because of the craving, desire, attachment to get through and get to the end, the unenlightened mind is going to sometimes rush through things. But in order to have peacefulness all the way through an event like that, you just take things one at a time. And even though others might be trying to speed you up or get you to be interactive in one way or another because their mind has certain cravings, you just be stable, you just be steady, you just handle one thing at a time. And that's the best way is that when you feel the mind is wanting to run and wanting to go fast is that you restrain it and you pull it back and you just handle one thing at a time because then you can bring your full wisdom to each individual situation that you're encountering and you can just handle each one single threaded. Whereas if you're trying to handle this situation and you're thinking about four or five other situations, it's going to be very difficult for you to bring your full wisdom to bear and handle that situation well. So just slow things down, restrain the mind, and work on having peacefulness all the way through the event rather than sometimes what happens is the mind thinks if I just get through this, that's where the peacefulness will be. But what an enlightened being has trained their mind to be able to do is have peacefulness all the way through an event like that and just handle things single-threaded, one at a time. Thank you, teacher. It does not appear there are any more questions at this time, sir. All right. Well, thank you all for joining for today's class. 
Next class, we're going to be exploring chapters 31 through 40 in the same book, volume 10. So feel free to read those before class and or after class. Tomorrow, we're going to be in the group learning program where we're studying chapter 6, which is titled The Middle Way, Walking the Middle Way. And there, I'm going to give you this very simple but yet very profound teaching that I feel is very simple from the Buddha. But when you understand it and you apply it to your life, it can be very profound. Sometimes the most simplest teachings can have the most impact and be most profound. So I'll share that with you tomorrow as part of the group learning program. And then on Wednesday, we'll be doing the second part of our four-part series on Buddhist chanting. So you're welcome to join for that as well. So I'll see you either next Saturday, perhaps this Sunday or Wednesday. And in the meantime, have a very lovely and wonderful rest of your day. We'll see you next time. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.